Well, here's, here's praying that this has been, been going on. What time is this section in, just so I know? <laughs> no, I'm going to try and like, be reasonable. Okay. Um, this, uh, this prayerfully has been going on as, as the Spirit has been convicting us through His Scriptures and you know, giving us no place to hide, no place to run. But it's fine. You know what's beautiful about it is, is that when we, when we finally do really uh, surrender fully over to the call of Christ, it is the most exhilarating experience. And we all know this. But here's one thing, and I, and I, I was going to try and include a section on this, but I can't. But I'm just going to include it now as just a bit of a transition. The only way that this can actually really happen, all of what we just looked at, is in community. And it would have been in no way thought of as a Lone Ranger mentality of any of these people that were going about this. And I keep referencing trips to Israel, but one of the things that really did blow me away on my trip to Israel is I, I would always read different things in the Gospels and picture them as being applied individualistically because it's the air that we breathe. And there's nothing more individualistic than, than the rugged, rugged Western individualist, right? Uh, and, and my goodness, doesn't Colorado personify that? So you, you all know that in spades. Uh, but we are the most individualistic place ever, perhaps, uh, on the face of the earth at any time on the face of the earth. And so we, we immediately take all these things and, and apply them in a, in a singular way, individualistic way. For example, a lot of the, uh, even like the farming uh, parables, you know, it made me think of life in Israel as, you know, a little house on the prairie, and you had your farm out there, you know, it was agrarian society, and that's how people lived. You know what blew me away is going to Capernaum, as we showed it on the map, and when I, I got to Capernaum and I looked at the farms, I came back, looked at the, the place where everybody lived, nobody lived in a little house on a prairie anywhere. They had watchtowers, which the Bibles describe, where they may stay for a night at a random time during an intense time of harvest, but when we came back, it blew me away. Every single house looked like tenement housing in you know, Chennai, India, piled up on top of one another, and they were all as tightly packed around the synagogue as they possibly could be. Everybody just lived and lived out community. And it was just the assumption for everyone as they lived out their Judaism, and as they were brought into Christianity, it was likewise the assumption. One heart, one mind, one purpose, as they went about all the things that they did. Everything was first person plural, not first person singular, as they went about it. And, and a couple of people have asked me, how do, you, how do you really kind of keep stuff like this going back in your own church? You know, when we, we, when we pray in the morning, you know, I've often said, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a great prayer if I got up and, you know, based on these convictions, and it was like, all right, God, today, let, let me not get off my knees until I am deeply convicted about getting out there and making a difference, really following Jesus, doing it even if it's difficult, finding every open door, running after it, even if it means that my reputation is going to be shot by that, that's fine, as long as I can make some sort of a difference in the life of someone. Let me, God, do this. Let me shrink back from nothing today. How fantastic will that be? Well, as, as great as that prayer is, how much greater is it knowing that I would be praying and everybody else that I know would be praying is, God, help us. Help us today, God, as we get out there together, God, as brothers and sisters, as we are all out there living out, imitating you. God, help us all 
to have that kind of a courage. Help us to never shrink back. Help God, even as my brothers and sisters head to their workplaces and their places of employment, their schools, all of them, the God, that they will likewise have this, this, this fire within them that we in concert, one mind, one heart, one purpose, that, that we all together will be on this edge for the sake of Jesus Christ. And, and so it was. I mean, it's so convicting reading through the book of Acts. Every prayer they had was a communal prayer. They were together in prayer. The only prayer, you know, as, as you make your way through the first half of Acts, that is a singular prayer, is Peter when he's you know, kind of caught up in the trance in, in Acts chapter 10. Every other prayer is, is everybody doing it together, praying for these very same things. You know, Father God, whom we seek first with, you know, I mean, that song, and now enable us to speak your word boldly uh, as, as we head out. The only way, if you sit here feeling, all right, it says undaunted, I'm daunted. Uh, whatever daunted means, I'm that. Uh, and, oh my goodness, the only way that we have a shot at this is to do it the way that Jesus has intended, as community, as a, a fellowship, not only devoted to the Lord, but to one another. You know, and as, as we have fellowship with one another, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, First John chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, it's, it's only through that kind of a life. And, and likewise, when we start to fall off, that we continue in First John chapter 1 type fellowship, that it's fellowship in the light, that we're, we're not trying to put up a false front about how we failed over and over again about any of these things. The nice thing about it is, is that we have this amazing culture of grace and this community of grace that is, that is there so that we can be open about any of these times that we fall rather than trying to put up the machismo front that may not really be the, the case. And, and then by that, to be able to have the support and the encouragement and to be able to get back in there one with another for really representing the body of Christ to a, a, a place that, that so radically needs it. So uh, one of the keys to this, by far, if you, you sit at this saying, oh, the answer is right around you. It, it happens when our entire culture and our, our entire community is one mind, one heart, one purpose in all of this. So, uh, Amen. Well, can you get my Bible? Do you, do you mind just handing me that Bible right there? Thanks. Uh, we're, we're now going to turn towards how, how is it that we can actually have such a radical transformation? You know, there are passages in the Bible that astound me when they show how different it is in the before picture to the after picture that, that we've all experienced. And we all have shared testimonies, and a lot of those testimonies have been jaw-dropping. But we, I think if we were really raw, honest with one another, we, we tend to think that we are not, and, and I think this is our default, that we tend to overestimate our capacity to seek God before our baptism, and we tend to underestimate who we are after our baptism. And the reason is it's humanism. Humanism is our default because it's, it's, it's likewise all about us, and it's, it's kind of what we end up sinking towards. But the, the change is so different that it's not going to occur just because we, in our wonderful, humble, seeking hearts, picked up the data of the Bible and applied good and right principles, maybe even the kind of the deductive scientific method of getting this thing right, and, and based on having that right approach, that right systematic approach to this data, then suddenly we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps and became better people because we're being fed by better stuff. If, if we, if we do, I mean, I obviously put a, put a caricature out there, but it's not, not so far sometimes, I think, from what we think. But, but look with me over in Ephesians chapter 4.
This is who we are in the before picture. Verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. That's us. That's us in the before picture. Our thinking, our ability to grab this Bible, our ability to be able to process this information is worthless, futile, impotent in that capacity. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more, or they are full of greed, depending on your translation. Now, that's the before picture. Look at, in most of these cases, the juxtaposed after picture is so beautifully different. This, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in, and this is radical, true righteousness and holiness. Not just some sort of ascribed righteousness or holiness. Do you see that, that, that radical difference here? You've got a new attitude in your mind. You have a new self. You are now created, recreated to not be that before picture, to be like God. And as you become like God, you have actual, aletheia, true righteousness and holiness. That is a big difference. And that big difference doesn't come about because we're really good about telling a story about having two wings of an airplane and what happens if you don't have one. And it's not going to come about by that. It's only going to come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we could, we could look at scripture after scripture that shows the before and the after of, of who we are, but the changes are so profound that it could not in any way come about because we have some great insight to be able to study the Bible with people to be able to bring about that change. Uh, if anything, that we are just simple, wonderful conduits to be able to bring people to a place where the Holy Spirit can really be doing that sort of work in their lives. And that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, look in John 16, 8, and we'll see Jesus talking about that work of the Holy Spirit. Here we go. Now, the, the context here is Jesus is telling his disciples that he's about to leave them. They are quite grieved, as any of us would be. You spend that kind of time with such an amazing rabbi, you know, even the Son of God now, uh, that there would be a disappointment hard to measure. But in the depth of their disappointment, here's what he says. Uh, verse 6. Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, it is for your good. As a matter of fact, in some translation, it says it's to your advantage that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So in other words, at this moment, Jesus is saying to them, it's going to be for your good, for your advantage. It's a hookup for you. Trust me on this. It's a hookup that the, the advocate is coming. The advocate, if you look in uh, 1426 or 1526, is clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, 
Matter of fact, he even refers to it as another paraclete. So it gives us a little bit of insight that just as Jesus was, so the work of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. But, but he says now, now when the Holy Spirit comes after his glorification, this is, this is what's going to happen. Verse 8. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong. Or you may have convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So this is a, a new ministry that is about to occur that is being explained by Jesus in this, this uh, coming uh, of, uh, of the Holy Spirit. And the idea here of convicting, it's, it's an interesting word. Uh, it's a word that maybe you've been familiar with. Some of you read the repentance book. I spent a little bit of time on, on this idea. But it is the, the word alenko. And it is an interesting word. It's, uh, it's used dozens of times throughout our Bible. Uh, it's, it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, even, even more so. But it is this idea, and, and here's uh, one, of, uh, one of the better New Testament lexicons. It says, the idea of this is to show someone his sin in order to summon him to repentance. Uh, it is the idea of kind of the courtroom in which you are helping to, to bring evidence to the degree that someone can finally proclaim guilty as charged. It's a, it's a beautiful idea. It's different from the idea of just simply rebuking someone is this idea of reproving someone. It's, it's most often translated in our Bibles as reprove. And I'll, again, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because it's an important concept and it's one that helps us all to get to where we need to be and also helps us as we help other people actually come to know Christ. Because this reproving is to be done to the world. And the context of 14, 15, and 16, the world is those who are, who are not yet disciples. But we'll also see that the Holy Spirit obviously continues to reprove us even as we are disciples of Jesus Christ, even in our, our reborn state as it occurs. But, but again, to try to capture in a nutshell this idea of this work of the Holy Spirit to reprove, to expose, uh, to um, prove the, the matter, it's, it's kind of like, you know, we're on trial uh, you know, the, the, the evidence is mounting up against us, you know, DNA evidence, voice prints, you name it, hair follicles, it's all matching up. And, and it's so overwhelming and it's so airtight that all we can do is kind of like just fall on our knees before the great judge and plead guilty as charged and then trust whatever's going to come next. It's a hard thing to get somebody to that very point. There's paths of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow that end up uh, being a pretty big deal at the moment that, that all of that happens. Uh, but it is the great gracious work of the Holy Spirit. I believe when God says in Acts chapter 5 and later in Acts chapter 11, and even uh, again in, in, in uh, 2 Timothy 2, that God grants repentance, I believe that the way he grants repentance is that the Holy Spirit does the work to be able to help us to really be thoroughly convicted and have our eyes open back up to be able to take that path of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But the, the, the problem with this whole idea of being used by the Holy Spirit or even accepting the work of the Holy Spirit, this exposing, reproving, convicting work of the Holy Spirit, is that we all have baggage and we've all been perpetrators of baggage, and I probably as, as much as anybody, because there's another word that is similar in our New Testament and even more in terms of confusion, sometimes alenko is translated rebuke. 
And it's just an English overlap semantically of, of these words. But if we can just stick with the Greek for a second and, and look at elenko versus the word that is often translated rebuke, which is epitomao. Uh, I'm going I'm to read to you a, there's a great, great resource called a, uh, Synonyms of the New Testament. And, and in, in this, it, it contrasts elenko and epitomao. It says, in this possibility of rebuking or epitomao for sin without convicting of sin, lies the distinction between these two words. And epitomao lies the notion of rebuking, which can therefore be used of one unjustly checking or blaming another. In this sense, we just read this, Peter began to rebuke his Lord. Or ineffectually, this could be done without any profit to the person being rebuked who is not there brought to see his sin. As when the penitent robber rebuked epitomao, his fellow malefactor on the cross in Luke 23, Mark 9. But alenko is a much more pregnant word. It is so to rebuke another or reprove another with such effectual wielding of the victorious arms of truth as to bring him, if not always to a confession, at least to a conviction in a godly sorrow of his sin as is seen in juristic Greek. Uh, so I hope, I hope the, the contrast even helps in that regard. For example, to rebuke epitomao is, is more the idea to censure, to silence, or to protect other people by shutting down some sort of an element that they need to be protected from. A, a great example is when Jesus comes into the boat uh, after walking on water, he then rebukes the wind and the waves. What is it that he does? He silences the wind and the waves. And, and that is this idea of epitomao. But the, the reason that this is a difficult one for us, and I think one that we need to kind of take the constraints off of, is because, and I, I, you know, there's been lots of, um, let, let's get open, let's talk about things that went on in our past, you know, the whole 2003 episode, and there's a lot where I've thought, ah, I think you're being a little too sensitive here. But on this one, i got to be like, you know what, guilty as charged on this one. Because there was a culture that we certainly had where we'd have an intense D time, and let's say back when I was single, and I'd come home, and they would say, how did it go? And again, I'm, I'm given to hyperbole, so I'll probably do that here again. But they'll come out and say, how did it go? And I'll be like, oh, man, I laid that brother out. Man, I brought it. I brought it to him, man. I, you know what? After he told me what he did, I, I looked at him and I said, you make me sick. How could you do such a thing? You put Jesus on the cross. You, oh, how, how dare you? You know, you know sadly, maybe I'm like, a little more theatric right now than, than I may have, but probably there was stuff like that. And it, and it happened, and it happened, and it happened, and it was this kind of machismo culture of, hey, you want to you be a, an effective wielder of the truth? You better get in there and knock somebody upside the head with the, with the word of God and bring the rebuke, bro, bring the rebuke. Don't be afraid. That, that went on. So, my goodness. Uh, and, by, by the way, I'm, I'm one that has um, experienced probably as, as much... A damage of that as, as, as anybody that I know. Um, as you might have done the math earlier when I was being introduced, I have uh, you know, boys that are 22 and 19. Well, I've been married 15 years. How does something like that happen? They're not both Jesus. Um, <laughs> and it's not like the dire straits say, two men say they Jesus, one of them must be wrong. It's not that either. Uh, but, but it's that I was... I was, uh, I, they were my sons before I became a Christian. And then uh, after I'd become a Christian, had a, uh, 
you know, such a, a really rough session at one point in time that, that, that my wife at the time fell away. And it was a, a really difficult session. And, and, I, and I remember being kind of caught in all of that crossfire of like, what, where, where do I go with all of this? And I knew that, you know, the, the, that this is true. This has changed our lives. Uh, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't possible for her to have, have responded at the time in that way. And, uh, and I was ultimately given a, a real choice at that time that if you remain with, with, with all of this, then I'm going and I'm taking the boys. And that ended up being the, the real horrible decision that I had left in my life. Is, and in every, every choice that I had was going to be for me, without a doubt, a clear compromise on what it was to follow Jesus. There was no way I could kind of reconcile it in my mind. And trust me, did I try? I used all the creativity that I could conjure to think, maybe I could do it this way, maybe I could do it this way. Any of these, just so long as not that, not that God, not my, my, my college sweetheart, not my four-year-old, my two-year-old, my, my, my precious sons, not that. So you know, when you talk about this culture and my goodness, I, I don't think I can move forward. I, you know what? I, I think I know. I think I know with a great depth. I know what it is to, to lose 20 pounds of depression. I often joke, at least I had the kind of depression where you lose weight uh, during, during that time. But, but I know what it is to you know, not even be able to drive my car because it was too unsafe because the tears were stinging my eyes so hard. I'm talking about month after month after month. And all of this happened as a one-year-old Christian. So I, I know what, what all of that is, is, is really all about. And in the end, we still have a choice to make. Are we going to kind of move forward knowing with clarity what it is that Jesus calls us to do? Or are we going to kind of still have to, you know, kind of turn around on, on all of that? I mean, I, I hate that, that, that all of that is the case for sure, without a doubt. But I, I have really just one, one choice that's before me now, and that is the, the path that Jesus lays out before us. By the way, I think that because I did actually decide not in any way to compromise on Christ. I tried. Trust me, I tried. But, but God didn't allow me to compromise that, that in the end, you know, I think I did get a hundred times as much in the end because my boys now are, are disciples of Jesus. When, um, when, when I moved, when, when, we were, when Deb and I were married, we moved, the church moved us to the very town where the, where the boys lived in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was like, oh, thank you, God. But three months later, their, their mom called to say that, um, her relationship that she had had really wanted them to move to Virginia Beach three hours away. I'm like, oh, I've just spent like over a year of my life only seeing my boys sporadically, and, and now they're going to be three hours away again? God, oh, what is going on? Like, come on, I, I didn't compromise. I made this choice. When I'm crying, screaming, yelling, 45 minutes later, uh, the phone rings, and it's... um. The, the, the fairy's brother, Rob Goodman, calling me, and he's, he's kind of like walking on eggshells in the phone call. He, he was lead, leading the church in Virginia Beach, and he's sounding weird, and he's like, I don't know how to ask this. I know your boys are there. You know, and again, just 45 minutes later, and he says, is there any chance that you would want to move to Virginia Beach and, and, and be in the ministry down here? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, God is real. God is real. And he happened to take us from that tiny little church to the place which would end up being one of the best teen ministries that we could have ever imagined. And, and, and again, the boys had to kind of fight through some things because, you know, they were, they were not with us most of the time. But, but that enabled them to be able to do all of that. And, you know, they've become great disciples. And amen, praise God uh, for, for all of that. But anyway, I say all of that, that, my goodness, I know what it's like to go through that. But I also know 
what it is to really not compromise on Christ, not because really necessarily myself. I had a lot of community, praise God, that, that helped me through that. And to now know the, kind of the, the other side of that and to see, wow, what it is to really have a, a hundred times as much. So amen for that. But um, so anyway, I want to be sensitive to this. And I, and I want you to know that I, I know of, of which I speak with regards to this. And the, the, the problem is, is that we, we have been tempted to kind of, throw out the baby with the bathwater, that we have, we have let epitamao, which needed to, to no longer be in the culture, go. Amen. But in the process, so did Alenko. And I think if we're honest, we would, we would know that Alenko is, is probably not the work of the Holy Spirit that we've been seeing as frequently in our lives that we really need it to be. Nor have we really been looking to be sensitive to the Spirit's calling when he is calling us, for example, where Alenko is used in, in Ephesians 5, that we who are children of light are to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather to Alenko them, to expose them. That is, that, that is what we're meant to do. But it is not an easy thing to do. We, we know that earlier in John, John 3, 19, one of the, the classic uses of this idea of, of convicting, reproving, exposing, it says, this is the verdict, 319. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Alenko. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And so... What, what really needs to happen here for us is, is we need to, to get back to recognizing the power of this work of the Holy Spirit as he's been given. We are born of the Spirit. We actually um, have, I'm sure many times, the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we see something that seems about a, a little off. And, you know, we have that spidey sense as disciples, but it's a spirit, supernatural spidey sense. And you know how it is. Somebody can just say like one simple word and, and you realize that something is off. Even the other night, I happened to um, be able to, to help somebody with something. And, and, and as I did, you know, it was a two-word interaction. And I went back and I, and I said to my wife, it was, it was a woman, I was like, honey, I, I think something was just a little bit off there. I, I'm not exactly sure. And, and she's like, yeah, I, I saw her tonight in fellowship too. And I, I think that, that was the case. You know, thank goodness that we didn't just say, well... You know, we don't want to be judgmental. I mean, who are we to judge? Instead, we're like, yeah, you know what? Maybe this is the Holy Spirit kind of, come on, get in there. This is what you were reborn to do. Uh, and, and, uh, and she called. And praise God that she did because it, it really did kind of grab her, you know, saving, saving this woman from the fire at, at just the right time. This has happened over and over. I mean, we all have stories of this, but we'll have more and more stories of this the more that we really allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit. And that, and that we, we can be sensitive to those very things of the Spirit. But it is not, a, um, it's not an easy task. You know, one of the classic examples of Alenko is, um, is when Jesus comes back to the churches and he has a little message for him in Revelation. And of the seven, five get a, a pretty serious Alenko coming their way. And in uh, Laodicea, the one that's probably most familiar to us because of the vivid idea of cold, hot, and lukewarm, you know, he comes back to them and says, I wish you were one or the other. But because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. You know, you say that I am rich, I don't need a thing, I've acquired wealth. Uh, and uh, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, 
poor, blind, and naked. I'm from Virginia. All right. I'm from New Jersey. I don't want to say it that way. But I, but I picture Jesus almost trying to get a wake up there. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But then it's a pleading. It's not just a, a censuring or a silencing, but it's a, so I counsel you. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can be rich. Solve to put on your eyes so you can see. White clothes for me to cover your shameful nakedness. And then the kicker at the end, he says, I think in verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I alenko and discipline. I reprove and discipline. Some even have I rebuke and discipline. Don't let the English kind of fool you in that regard. Obviously, the whole context of that is not him just trying to silence them. What does he want for them? He was, please come in and eat with me and I with you. He wants reconciliation to be able to occur in that very case. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Earnest is the defining word of godly sorrow, spude. It is, it is this idea of eagerness and earnestness. It's the word that actually defines the rest of the uh, descriptors of, of godly sorrow. It's interesting that you have elenco, godly sorrow, and repentance. And then ultimately, reconciliation that occurs from, from that whole transaction. And, and it is this astounding work of the Holy Spirit. But uh, again, how, how exactly does the Holy Spirit bring it about? The, the debate over the centuries has been over the idea, does it occur immediately or immediately? And by immediately, I don't mean, come on, do it right now. Uh, but, but it's the idea of M being the kind of negator of immediately. So immediately means with mediation. So there's, there's some, some sort of a go-between. Immediately means there's no sort of a, a medium or a mediator between the Holy Spirit and you. The Holy Spirit just kind of reaches in, flips the switch that we always hope that he'll do uh, and, and, and will change. But it does seem as though all throughout Scripture that this Elenco work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's convicting work, happens immediately. That is, through people that are, are Spirit-born, people that are sensitive and, and living according to the Spirit, children born of the light that want nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather to Elenco them. Here's a, a, pretty, a pretty good case study. Um, you know, the, 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 great, the great classic one is David, as he's caught up in you know, the worst of all sins in 2 Samuel 11, where uh, he, he's not out with the troops, he's out on his roof, sees Bathsheba, uh, looks good to him, implicates his servants, hey, go get her for me. Uh, she's naked, naked, New Jersey, naked. He gets her brings, her, brings her back, seduces her, impregnates her. Realizes she's pregnant, oh, jig is up. I got to figure this out and think quick rabbit. So he does. He calls Uriah, his mighty man in from the battle lines and says to him, Uriah, great guy. You deserve a break today. Why don't you go back and spend the evening with your, your wonderful wife, Bathsheba? And Uriah says something so convicting to David. How could how could I do such a thing? Who would ever, when, when God's men are out fighting for the sake of God, how could I go and sleep with Bathsheba? Who would do that? Somebody. So instead he just sleeps on the, on the, on the stoop, on the doormat. 
The next day, David realizes it didn't work, so he, he kind of liquors him up the next night. And, uh, hey, more wine. Let's toast. Let's toast to God's you know, army. And, and he gets him drunk. And here's what's interesting is he then says the same thing. Go, go and you know, enjoy, enjoy the wife of your youth. And his same response. How could I do that? How could I do such a thing when, when God's people are, are out there on the line? You know, what's convicting is Uriah drunk is more righteous than David sober at this point in time. And then uh, the next thing that, that happens in the scriptures is Nathan is called by God and, and he is sent to go confront immediately. He's the mediator now of the Elenco to David. I'm sure that was no fun knowing that that was your job. None of us. Yeah, I'm from New Jersey and I don't like confrontation. Right. So I mean, none of us likes this. I don't mind it at times, honestly. But. <laughs> No, but I, but I really don't. No, nobody does. And, um, but so Nathan goes to David, and he tells him this parable to kind of warm him up. Uh, and, he, and he talks about this, this one man owned all the, the lamb and sheep that he could imagine, and, uh, and he, had, he had them all. But then he has a visitor come, and he wants to be hospitable, as, as we all are in the Middle East. So his neighbor only has one little ewe lamb, one little ewe lamb that he loved. As a matter of fact, he, he held it in his arms. It ate from his table. You know, it was like a little pet that he loved. It's all he had. Well, the rich man, when his friend comes, is kind of like a snidely whiplash. Ha, 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 ha. I'm going to go over, snatch that little lamb out of my friend's hands, bring it over, and I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to eat it. How about that? David hears the story, and you, you probably see the blood vessels starting to pump, and he's like, who could do such a thing? That man deserves to die. And then Alenko comes. Have I got it here? Well, th- this is actually just the before and after picture. You know, the before picture, da- David actually, um, I-, I skipped this part, but David actually writes a note, gives it to Uriah to give to um, the, the, uh, the army, to Josiah, and, and to bring it to them, and, and to tell them, put him in front of the hardest fighting, draw back from him, they may be struck down and die. That's, that's how dark David got. And yet, the Holy Spirit's going to be able to elenco him. Now, imagine, let's say Rob, Rob, I'm sure, loves John to death. But imagine, imagine Rob spent a lot of time in Philadelphia. Imagine if Rob had the ability, because he knew a guy who knew a guy, who could take out John. <laughs> but I mean, but, I mean, but I'm serious. I mean, imagine if, if he really did, and, and he really did write a note to, to, to his, his cousin Vinny, who knew another guy. And, but he actually got to that place where he did such a thing. And, and John was taken out. But we would think that, oh my goodness, that's incorrigible. How is anybody ever going to come back from that kind of darkness? But yet the Holy Spirit, through, I mean, that's how powerful Alenko is. Whether we're dead in sin or, or whether we're, we're, we're you know, so numb in sin before or after our, our rebirth of the Holy Spirit. That's because look at the very next thing. At least we know scripturally, the very next thing that comes off of David's pen is some of these words. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Obviously he knew he sinned more than that. But, but he was so dark, so depraved that he didn't even know that God was watching the whole time. And now his convictions are so great. Against you, you only, God, have I sinned. Psalm 51. How do you go from that before picture to that after picture? Alenko. 
intervention by, by what it is that I just described with, with uh, Nathan. You are that man. Busted. I mean, Alenko is like, we got the goods on you. God's been watching you, David, every step after another. We're talking CSI evidence, CSI Jerusalem, right here. And David realizes, and it is so overwhelmingly clear, what can I say? What can I say? I deserve to die. You know, and David, as a side note, he, he does repent, and we, we know, you know that he does repent. But interestingly, even though we can repent and God does forgive us of our sins and our salvation is, is secured with him, it doesn't actually remove the consequence of our sins. You know, the rest of what God says in Second Samuel 12 and the, and the rest of how David's life really does unravel is the very real physical consequences of our sin. Uh, and you may cheat on that test. You may cheat on your wife. You may cheat in, in some way or another. And yes, you can be forgiven of that, but there are very real consequences still nonetheless of that. And it's, it's not okay to just kind of simply whitewash these you know, huge transgressions as though, well, shouldn't, they all be, shouldn't we all be okay now at this point? Well, with David, the, uh, the, the results were enduring. We, we do forgive, of course, just as God forgave David, um, and so we harbor no grudge. But over time, what it is, this is what God has done. Whether it was Moses reproving the people of Israel, John the Baptist and all the prophets, reproving them as they went wayward, Jesus reproving over and over again and how effectively he does that. Think about the woman at the well. As she comes to him and, uh, and, and he says to her, when it's time for reproof, he says, hey, why don't you go, um, go call your husband? Yeah, let's see how that goes. And, uh, and, and she's like, uh, humana, humana, humana. Yeah, in fact... That the man that, you know, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. <sighs> Busted. And, you know, there she is, exposed. You know, killing me softly with his words, telling my whole life with his words, <laughs> killing me softly. One time, one time, right? And, come on. And, It's, it's, also, it's also what we see in letter after letter when Paul sends letters to the churches. What are they but just classic examples of Alenko? And, and let's look at you know, the, the great classic example, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 7. Verse 8. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you proved yourselves to be innocent in this manner. Now, here's, here's basically the, the crossroads that we face, and, and, and so did they face here in the context of 2 Corinthians 7. There was a letter, it was actually a letter that was in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. It was the harsh letter that Paul refers to, the intense letter that he refers to throughout 2 Corinthians, and 
having received the letter, the church had a, a choice to make. Were they going to respond with a worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to change and only leads to death, or with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and leads to salvation? It is what he wanted and is what he practiced, and it was a man of the Spirit that he knew that he needed to do. It grieved him to no end, as, as Paul describes how difficult it was to be able to even go through the experience of having to do this to the, the church that he planted, and to have to actually say some of the things that he did was very difficult for him. But it wasn't because he was just trying to put a notch in his belt saying, put them down, there you go, I silenced them. It was because he was trying to bring them to repentance. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does this great work through us, through life examples. It works in concert in so many different ways. For me, it had to be watching actual disciples live out discipleship before my very eyes, plus the scriptures, plus sermons, plus my own life experiences that were going awry. And in all those things, the Holy Spirit was working in great concert through all of that to help me come to a place where I can come to that crossroad, where I was sufficiently alenkoed. Uh, by that Holy Spirit to decide, now, which way is it that I'm going to go? And when you do ch- take this path of godly sorrow and repentance, the scriptures say it's times, times that are refreshing and fantastic. And, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But you know what? It is not yet salvation. And so sometimes, even as we're studying the Bible with people, it can be a bit confusing. I know it was, even for a lot of people that I know very well and love dearly, is that they might think, but yeah, but look, the Holy Spirit is working in my life. He has, actually, for all this time. Yes, you know what the Holy Spirit's been doing out of that love for you? He has been bringing you to this point of absolute clarity and conviction. And, and it is a supernatural intercession of a God who loves you dearly and wants nothing for you less than full discipleship, full salvation in Jesus Christ, and repentance. But repentance is so powerful, so powerful when, when we go from, from a, a mindset of unbelief to belief, when we go from dead in sin to alive in Christ, you know, in, in our thinking, in, in all of those ways. When we do have a, a new mindset completely, that, that it's, it's easy to think, my goodness, this must be salvation. I, I see clearly now, how amazing is this? The scales have fallen from my eyes. How can this not be salvation? You know, Paul might have even been tempted to think that. Bright light, intervention, everything's new. How great is this? He even fasted and prayed for, for all of those days. And even with him, while the intervention led to his godly sorrow and led to his repentance, he was met at that point by Ananias, who said to him, and now, what are you waiting for? But what had happened up until that point? He had been told by God, now, you're my chosen instrument. You're going to go to the Gentiles. You, you are actually the one that is going to bring my message. You've been miraculously healed. You've been intervened by Jesus. You've begun to obey Jesus. You've repented. You've been fasting and praying. You've got a godly sorrow. You've got repentance. And yet, he says, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord. When, when does that salvation come? Not to be mistaken of when that really does come. Matter of fact, John the Baptist makes that super clear as he prepares the way for the new covenant. He, if people wanted to get baptized, he's like, what do you mean? Have you repented? Unless you've repented, you've got no place trying to come here, you brood of vipers, to, to be able to flee from the coming wrath. Let me see a little something-something with regards to the fruit of your repentance before that occurs. And Peter has the same message, doesn't he? Repent, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we are baptized, we are born of water and spirit, and that is fantastic, but there's also lots of experiences with the Holy Spirit all along the way. It doesn't just happen at that point in time. We don't go from such a depth of darkness to such an amazing change because we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It takes the Holy Spirit all along the way. And thank God that that is really the case. And it is exciting, too, that we're starting to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit all over the place as we live as, as Christians uh, through, through all of this. But overall, I think if I were to kind of look at this, this work of the Holy Spirit convicting the world, I, I would say the Holy Spirit convicts with regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Think about the big things that when, when I was convicted by. When I was convicted about the fact that my righteousness is not really the righteousness that I see in the Bible, I'm not living as a Christian, I'm not living as a disciple, whoa, everything that I thought was so righteous about me going to church on Sunday and even going on Monday night, check me out. How, you get better than that? Uh, and, and apparently, yeah, I, I was convicted by the Scriptures. And then sin, oh my goodness, conviction by sin. And then, but that wasn't enough. I really need to be convicted of my judgment too. I need to be clear that I'm actually not right with God and allow the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit to be able to do that and to have people who are not afraid to put it on the line and actually share that. And I just say, well, it's something for you to consider. No, this is what the Bible says. Here's your timeline. You've showed me what's gone on in your life. Here's the clarity of this. And once I was convicted of all three of those, well, then uh, there, was, there was nothing left to do but to realize, ah, busted, you got me, pleading guilty. That, that change that occurs when we go from a mindset of unbelief to belief, is metanoia, the change of mindset, repentance, by, by which we come to a place of being a believer. Having, having come to belief, then we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And we receive, in the end, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, of forgiveness, and of the church. Uh, the Spirit fantastic and all that it does, not only then, but even afterwards as he, as he helps our lives. But if this is really going to be the work of the Holy Spirit, he needs to be able to work through us without us in any way putting out the Spirit's fire. That we need to fan into flame this gift of the Holy Spirit, whether that's with one another, whether, and, and my goodness, please, 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 don't let the mess that occurred before be the nasty gift that keeps on giving. Let us move beyond that and realize we are shortchanging and being short-sheeted, really, of the life that we need to be living in Christ because epitomao is not what we need. Maybe sometimes, and it'll be rare, maybe once like every couple of years, there's going to be somebody that we need to protect everybody from. But what we need is alenko. We need the convicting, exposing, reproving work of the Holy Spirit. And scripturally, it happens through us. And we cannot shy back. If God views you faithful, that wow, you got to actually observe what went down over there. You, you, and then, my goodness, please, let's practice what Matthew 18 says. The brother sins. As a matter of fact, the new NIV even takes it to that level because all the earliest manuscripts doesn't say if a brother sins against you. It just says if a brother sins. Go, point out his fault just between the two of you. Guess what that word, point out his fault, is? Alenko. Go expose, convict, reprove. Go, go bring that before them just between the two of you and hopefully he'll listen to you and you'll win your brother back. In other words, if, if you're the one that God actually views you to be uh, faithful, don't pass it off. Don't play seventh grade dating things where you, know, you tell their best friend, they tell their best friend and they hand a note and see if they want to be bro- boyfriend and girlfriend through all of that. Or, you, know, you tell their disciple and they tell somebody else and they go over there and they come back. If, if you're the one that's there, my goodness, out of love, with the right attitude, with Alenko, go show them what, what it is that, that, that you have seen. If you win them over, great. If not, don't leave it there. 
And, and Jesus says, don't keep trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Insanity, right? Instead, grab one or two others, go there with fasting and prayer and love, and, and then really try to do the same. And if not that, then, my goodness, bring the whole fellowship in if that's what it takes. But when the fellowship is there, it's not like the fellowship becomes passive in that case. You're now being recruited by the Holy Spirit to all be in concert without any kind of weak link of enabling to really bring about. Because God wants, God wants us to, to be able to move past any of these dullness states of transgression and to know the refreshment that comes from repentance and the growth that comes from being alenkoed, convicted, and called higher by the Holy Spirit. So my goodness, let me encourage you. Please, please, please. As we work more in community, let these communities be communities that help us to get to the place where Jesus wants us to get to, where the Holy Spirit so desperately wants us to get to. It is a place of true righteousness and true holiness as we live out the discipleship of Christ. Thanks.